welcome to Podcast on Fire on Lost in Time and Lost and Found. So welcome also to the conclusion of melodrama season. And while there's still while there's still terminal disease in the air and in these movies, uh, one of the directors tries to nurse a character back to life in a way again after tragedy and proves, this director that we'll name soon, that even though this actor is dead, Louis Koo will still get third billing. That's the power of the coup, or the coup-ster, if you will. He's dead. You know he's dead within a minute of this movie, lost in time. He still got, got third billing. Explain that. But, and we will. And that and more in our review on, and discussion of Derek Yee's Lost in Time from 2003. So Derek Yee makes a return to melodrama season after me and Kevin Maher discussed Selavi Moncherie. Also, Michael Wong as a Scotsman and Kelly Chang gets cancer in Lost and Found, which is the 1996 drama that concludes our melodrama season. And it also, the movie kind of concludes in Scotland, which brings, if you know your history with Podcast on Fire, it brings it sort of home in a way, because Stuart, who is Scottish, formed and created this show. So, and that wasn't my intention. I just uh, remember that. Oh yeah, it was said in Scotland. Hey, he won't care, but uh, like it said in Scotland, we brought it home to you. I, I even showed him a clip from... Uh, from the from the Scottish section of Lost and Found. And his reaction was, well, that looks like a nice tourism advert. And Canada's, because it looks <laughs> rather beautiful. Uh, but uh, anyway, my name is Kenny B, and with me to conclude these things is uh, someone I greatly enjoy discussing uh, old and new Hong Kong cinema with. And uh, now he's here in this themed series once more. And uh, we, we did a gambling season series, him and I. And that is none other than East Screen, West Screen's Paul Fox. So... Say hi, and uh, after being a blubbering mess, you can now you can now uh, say hi after having watched these movies. <laughs> yep. Hi, everybody. Excuse me. I need to get a tissue. It's it's so beautiful in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, these movies didn't give me as much of a workout. I, I'll tell you, the last episode with all my always on my mind that that was that was an emotional uh, roller coaster for me, despite being a comedy out of this series. It's actually a drama comedy, but uh, nevertheless, welcome and thank you for. Um, for again, uh, turning up for this show and let, let, let me just off the cuff even though uh, we might have covered the movies in this series uh, what's spontaneous spontaneously some of your favorite hong kong weepies if you will if not these two i mean you guys have covered say la vie mon Cherie, and also um all about all along those are two ones that i just remember bawling my eyes out at mm-hmm. and um another one that it's not really a weepy but it kind of is in the time period of, of the second film we're going to be talking today. And that is uh, Anna Magdalena, which also has Kelly and uh, Kenshiro and uh, Aaron as well. Yeah, that, that movie took me by surprise because I didn't know of its like two halves. Uh, and, but it also delighted me because it uses or stole the score from... Um, well, no, not really. It, it felt like, okay, they're doing the score from Brazil. But the main theme from Brazil is not something that was composed for Terry Gilliam's Brazil. You know, Brazil... That's an older thing, so... Don't remember it being a weepy as such, uh, but uh, I just remember, like, what? Uh, 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 fantasy? All of a sudden? <laughs> uh, one of those movies I watched uh, when I first got into, like, buying Hong Kong movies on DVD when they were so cheap. Like, I just bought bulk bulk stuff and Anna Magdalena was uh, part of that. Uh, directed by that uh, guy who does uh, mostly production design uh, Hai Chung Man or Yi Chung Man and it shows, it shows. <laughs> Very much so so uh, I remember an online friend of mine wanted to uh, make a replica of Takeshi's uh, long coat from the second half of that movie that sort of uh, stitched together sort of coat that um, 
uh, Dora, Dora M, uh, presumably designed. She was the costume designer on that one. So um, cool, man. Um, East screen, West screen. We always plug it, but you're gonna plug it again. Uh, you you don't always do uh, weepies on the show, but you certainly do a coverage of notes. So, but uh, for people who do not know what that coverage is, let's uh, give a little promotional blurb uh, uh, blurb out there. So. Yes, it is uh, East Screen, West Screen. You can find us over at Kongcast.com where we cover uh, current films from Hong Kong and some other stuff that we feel is relevant to our listener base. And uh, there is weeping that occurs, and it's usually when anybody ever listens to me. Ah, shut up. <laughs> it's it's uh, constructive content that uh, that's, uh, you, you got a new section that's very worthwhile for me and uh, some debating sometimes and uh, and movie reviewing with context and fun attached to it. Uh, so uh, don't sell yourself short, man, because uh, otherwise uh, we uh, we would have called you out on it if uh, if we if we cried during the show because of your <laughs> lack of podcasting qualities in you. We would have called you out and shamed you online and officially, of course. But we haven't, so therefore you're doing a good job. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, there it is. A uh, little uh, URL for people who do not know uh, where, where you are, because uh, it's not eScreenWestScreen.com, uh, certainly. Yeah, we are Concast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. Has someone else got that uh, domain, or you just never bothered bother to register it as well, or ESWS.com? Well, I originally started out with the idea of the site being a hub for this show and other shows, and um, I just don't have the fortitude that you do to create an expansive network. <laughs> so I've just done the East Green, West Green show. I had planned to do um, some other shows with everything sort of being central, along with I do a blogging on occasion, and I've been wrestling with maybe getting back to writing and um, now that the lovehkfilm.com site has gone on a hiatus i'm considering taking up some written reviews not to replace ross but to maybe just kind of hold down the fort until he decides to return to the fold and then uh, maybe pass the stuff that i write over to his site because i've done some guest writing for him before and um, but uh, you know now that he's kind of stepped back for what may be a considerable period um there's a little bit of a void and maybe there i can you know, add some words on a page to help fill that void a little bit. That would be cool. So uh, let us know how that goes. Uh, uh, but in the meantime, let's rattle off some of our contact information really quick. This is Podcast on Fire and the conclusion of Melodrama Season. Uh, we, we didn't plan to do more than three shows because if you stack too many of these movies on top of each other, it's going to be like super redundant after a while because you realize some of them are similar similar in theme and stuff. So I thought like three, three apps. Six movies, that's probably enough uh, for now. Uh, but regardless, uh, we are available on podcastonfire.com along with all our other shows on Hong Kong cinema, you and all, Japanese cinema, Korean cinema, Lisa cinema, Ninja cinema. We do bonus episodes as well every now and again. Email us if you have any questions or feedback, and we would love to know what's your favorite Hong Kong drama, Hong Kong tearjerker out there. Podcast on fire at googlemail.com is that address. Hit us up over at social media using the handy buttons at the top of our website. Click the Facebook one to reach our page. And while you're there, leave a like in support. But you can also search out the Podcast on Fire Network discussion group for show updates, discussion, and what have you. We're a friendly bunch over there, so welcome in. Click the Twitter button to reach our Twitter feed. Click the iTunes button to subscribe to us on said iTunes. And once you're there, Leave a star rating in, in terms of what you thought of the show. One, 
five, four, three, two. It's up to you. And uh, even leave a written comment if you feel like it. That would very much be appreciated. And finally, click the Stitcher radio button if you want to stream us uh, on their website. But uh, you can also download applications available on the Apple App Store and uh, Google Play if you want to stream us on the go via Stitcher radio. And I review a variety of Hong Kong and uh, Taiwanese movies, mostly of questionable content. Therefore, I have questionable taste, but damn it, I I go where my creative uh, creative uh, heartbeat, uh, heartbeat uh, resides. So uh, that's what ends up at SoGoodReviews.com. Uh, like, yeah, I've, I've, I've gotten Paul to watch some of these Taiwanese children's movies with a lot of uh, uh, pea humor in them. That, that's like the, the go-to ones, but they, they, they mix it with special effects fantasy stuff as well so i guess that balances out uh, it, it makes them proper movies right would you ever show your kid that or it, that is just too immature and too like graphic <laughs> because they're violent too those movies <laughs> no i think i if if she gets to the point where she wants to watch some of that stuff with me i'd be happy to show it to her she'll, she'll hum the the nice theme songs afterwards there's always like good friendly theme songs attached to those uh, ch- um child of peach magical spell movies so uh, very good. I also do uh, basic video reviews over at sleazykvideo.com and my Twitter handle is at SoGoodReviews. So let's uh, take a musical break. We don't do promos uh, for this uh, particular series because the, the music I find uh, across these movies to be uh, very good, sometimes iconic, and uh, acts as nice mood setters. And uh, we're going to hear some of Peter Cam's award-winning score from Lost in Time from 2003. So sit tight and we'll be back. And welcome back in the first review of this uh, final episode of Melodrama Season before we get back to our regularly scheduled programming. But that movie is, uh, regardless, Lost in Time from 2003 and plot from my review of the film uh, after losing her fiancé, Man, played by Louis Koo, in a traffic accident. Uh, Holly, played by Cecilia Chung, now takes it upon herself to raise Man's son, Lori, played by Daichi Harashima. And uh, she decides to pursue that same line of work man uh, did, uh, and uh, that's uh, driving a minibus. You know, he died driving a minibus. It comes with great difficulties, but she's aided along by Hale, played by, La- played by Lao Ching-Wan, who was with man during his last moments. The two form a bond that brings a needed comfort and a father figure into Holly and Loris' life. So we'll keep it, keep it uh, sh- short and sweet. Short opinion, though, of uh, Lost in Time, this uh, grand uh, return for um, for director Derek Yee. But uh, what do you think of uh, Lost in Time, Paul? Good film, uh, good insight and look at um, industry that's not well known outside of Hong Kong, that of the sort of the minibus industry, they don't get too deep into it so that it's sort of just a, a technically boring and dry film. Uh, but they use it well enough as a plot device to tell the story of this very sort of unique situation that arises and really just great character performances by pretty much anyone who's on screen. If there's a downside to this film for me, it's in Miss um, Chung, and I'll get into that a little bit later. Controversial. She was awarded for this role, damn it. <laughs> uh, but uh, we'll, um, it's a part of that career that uh, was thriving before the uh, 
so to say, photo scandal. You know, it was adults taking naughty pictures of each other that happened to uh, leak, you know, to uh, to the public. So not, none of those people did wrong, but she was unfortunately involved in that. Her career took a little toll, but uh, uh, we'll we'll talk about. It, I'm sure. Uh, I I agree. It, it takes a it takes a pro, Derky, in this case, to just make a story about someone helping out someone else and how we to make that affecting and how we build ourselves after tragedy and after having made mistakes we we become better people you know it takes a pro to make that engaging and affecting and i, I think it certainly is it looks criminally simple it, it you know it isn't obviously but uh, regardless a uh, comes through with believable performances from either the old veterans uh, to, and to the ones that are in the middle of their career so to say and even the young one you know, little Daichi Harashima comes through with, with a little uh, little performance. Uh, I should just state, we've done this through the show, uh, these movie reviews will contain spoilers. Because I think it's important to talk a little bit about how these movies uh, deal with the drama side and the emotional side and so forth. Uh, this one doesn't contain one of those, like, super tragic endings, though. Because that happens at the top of the movie. <laughs> you know, the greatest, like, rug pulled out underneath from us takes place at the top of the movie uh, so just you know that Paul uh, as well now that you you can let the spoilers fly if you would before we get on uh, get on uh, I wanted to ask you, you you know if you pull up the Derek E filmography you you know this maybe you know from memory that he um, took a little bit of a break uh, before emerging with 2003's Lost in Time he hadn't directed in four years uh, even though he, never, he didn't direct each and every year but it felt like a little bit of a break from quite a small movie and then this one came out with stars named stars and they eventually got awarded so uh, was that something you sort of reacted to in your head that he's been away for a while oh he's back or, or you didn't think about it, it was just like oh another Derek E movie let's let's see what he has to offer yeah I mean knowing where he came from especially with films like say La Vie Mon Cherie knowing who was headlining this I just remember going into the cinema thinking, okay, uh, when is he gonna gonna pull the rug right out from under us? And then he just does it right in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so no, we're like, okay, Louis! We, yeah, we, we got that out of the way. So what's next? And then he kind of just takes you on this journey uh, that's a very sort of unconventional and interesting kind of journey. It's it's a very sort of different kind of situation that uh, the main character played by Cecilia Chung finds herself in and. Then she meets this fellow in Lao Ching Wan who, I wouldn't say it's a twist, but, you know, he has something that kind of pops up a bit later that is kind of also an interesting arc of his own. And the reason, by the way, I was asking about that break, sort of, because the movie did between Viva Erotica and this was this movie called The Truth, of, Truth About Jane and Sam, which wasn't really, you know, in terms of cost anyway. I like that cost. I like um, her a lot, um, Fan Wong. But... To me, it seems like there's been a gap between, you know, what we consider a little bit of a bigger Derek E movie. I had that consciously in my mind that he's back. I, I, I sort of wrote that in my review that he's back, even though I liked the truth about Jane and Sam. But it felt like this little uh, small movie in between the Andy Lau movies and the Leslie Chung movies and the Lao Ching Wan movies he's done before. He's always worked with stars and uh, that Jane and Sam was this little movie in terms of uh, cost, if you will. It is important to to note, though, that he was still working. He was producing. Um, yes, he was. He'd worked on A Fighter's Blues, um, Double Tap, uh, uh, July Rhapsody, you know, with Jackie Chung and uh, Karina Lam. So, I mean, he was active during the period. He just wasn't 
sitting in the director's chair. Um, and so it was a nice return for him. Were you ever like um, looking more favorably at certain Derek Yee movies and moods? Because we know Derek Yee can do the dark quite well. And then, you know, you have movies that are a bit more romantic and less... Uh, less tragic you know what i mean we, we me and kevin have talked about where we have a little um like and love for the dark Derek E. you know this the socially conscious uh, Derek E. that just uh, you know is gritting his teeth and wants to say stuff man like the lunatics people see around there's certainly movies that have followed but any preference in or you just watch uh, whatever he, he does yeah, I'm a bit more on the opposite side of of the camp, as it were. I I prefer his more people centric films, like this one or say La Vie Mancherie. Um, when he when he starts getting dark with stuff like uh, Protege and One Night in Mancock and you know some of his earlier stuff, I like it. It's just it doesn't quite appeal to me as much. It's certainly tough to take. I mean, I, I think he's made movies with valid commentary but it sometimes comes at the expense of you know it's not family friendly anymore it's certainly is uh, is, uh, felt and what have you and uh, as Kevin has informed me of that he went through quite a personal crisis in the 90s um, and and it sort of shows up in movies like Viva Erotica Louching One plays this director who uh, whose midnight uh, premiere movie failed so he jumps up a roof off a roof and that's that is sort of reflecting Derek E's own psychology. He didn't jump off a, off a roof and kill himself, obviously. But uh, there, there was um, there was uh, difficulty getting movies made and personal issues and stuff like that. So, um, uh, but but this one uh, doesn't do the dark, uh, not at all. Uh, but what you worry about a little bit, especially for me, who has I've, I've watched a lot of these movies now for this series, you 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 worry a little bit when you encounter the same themes. Uh, they don't have to do with tragedy necessarily, but how, how to build yourself up again. That's a theme that I've encountered a couple of times. But obviously, it is all about execution. And you got you, you obviously got new characters. Um, you even got uh, fairly fresh actors uh, trying to sell this convincingly. And you kind of feel secure, though, because it is Derek Yee, after all, uh, you know, more than solid and even excellent director. He's also, you know what I think his biggest strength is, in all honesty, uh, when I think about Derek Yee? is when it's all every day and every man and every woman stories. You know, yep. th- there's no flash to some of these movies. La Vie Montcherie is a good example of there's no flash to this. He's just telling his story. And I, I find that super compelling, man. I really do. And uh, and, it, and it gives really a nice Hong Kong vibe. But this certainly yes. does because it's on the streets a lot of the time. too. And as with say, La Vie Montcherie, you know, he ju- he doesn't just pick the sort of standard melodrama or rom-com characters that we come to expect, you know, office ladies and, you know, young professionals and stuff. I mean, the characters in Sale of Montreal, struggling musicians, um, street singers, you know, that's 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 a very sort of locally cultural thing. And it reflects, you know, what real people do and, and, and what, you know, real people's lives are, are like in that, you know, and not everybody does that, obviously, but it's a different side. It's not something that, you know, any director has chosen to focus on. So here too, the same kind of idea, choosing to center this story, which he, I mean, he could have set this in a, you know, it could have been a, could have been about bankers. It could have been about any industry that's much more known and common on an international market, but he chose to focus on the minibus industry, which is very specific to Hong Kong. Yeah. I always wondered that when I see these, 
those traveling scenes happening in, happen in movies because you never see people pay people just get on and but obviously they pay afterwards but it's not one of those services where you swipe a card there's two there's two things and this doesn't really come through in the movie but um anybody who's spent some time in hong kong may have encountered it it can be a little bit confusing there's two different kinds of minibus services there's minibuses that have a green top and minibuses that have a red top now, if you get on a minibus with a green top, they're going to take an octopus card or coins. You pay when you get on. You know, it's kind of a set fare, right? Um, and with those minibuses, they have designated stops that they have to stop at. In this film, what Lewis was driving and what uh, it looked like Cecilia was take, trying to take over was a red minibus. And these minibuses um, tend to operate more in the evenings, though they have some that operate in the daytime. They don't have designated stops per se. Um, you can ask them to stop at, at a certain location, and if they're allowed to, they will, or they'll take you up to the next spot. And they kind of reflect this in the movie when Louching One is kind of schooling her on the proper way to do things. And with those, you pay when you get off based on where you got on at and the distance you've traveled. So that's why when you see her like putting that, they'll have different signs with like a number eight or a number 12 in the window, that's the cost depending on where you've got on, where you're getting off at. So, for example, if, if you would travel from Mong Kok up into the New Territories to someplace like um, Sha Tin, it might cost you $8. But if you go further north to Shang Shui, it might cost you $20. Um, and so then you pay uh, when you get off. And I remember one time, I, it was because they usually run really late at night. They run overnight um, after a lot of other services have stopped like the MTR and the, the main big bus services. Um, so they do a lot of business then. And some of the things she was dealing with, like the scene where the passenger throws up. I remember one night we were coming back late from Mongkok. Guy in front of me was there with his girlfriend, young couple, and looked like they'd been out karaokeing and, or partying or something. And he was just blasted. And I'm sitting on the seat right behind him, and he just hurls. And it's like running back under my feet and I'm like lifting up my feet and I, I you know the poor girl she didn't have any tissues or anything so I gave her a pack of my tissues to kind of help the guy out but then it's like the whole ride the, yeah the, the whole ride it was like you know that smell and it's like oh and um, so that kind of stuff happens and but yeah usually they run overnight and I, I remember one time because I was so out of it I was so late I had fallen asleep and I got off of my stop and I just got off because you forget that you know, if you're used to, I'm used to taking green minibuses and I pay when I get on. So I forgot to pay the driver and he's like mad. He's like yelling at me in Cantonese and I had to rush back and go, oh, doim -ju, doim -ju, you know, and I was like saying, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. And I, I gave him the money because I didn't mean to like bail. I just was so asleep that I realized I hadn't paid until I got like, you know, uh, five feet away from the bus. So yeah, that, those are the sort of the two different ways in which um, these operate. And it show it, it, it does, a, the film does a good job of showing a few of the aspects of riding on the minibus yeah i've never seen it so um um depicted in any detail before so this was a lot more details um let me ask you does the, the movie hinges a lot about uh, on the emotional connection between cecilia and lewis character but we don't see the emotional connection uh, until he starts playing with flashbacks so obviously the first thing that happens is that lewis Coop dies and we, we we barely know anyone we just know that his girlfriend is waiting for him does that, in the end, work? Does he build up this emotional connection that was? Um, because it is a challenge to do it 
in a, in a reverse, so to say, to take out a character and then you build you build that character up and in, in the emotional connection that was. Yeah, I think it works pretty well, um, especially as we get more in details on supporting characters. We realize her relationship with um, Laurie, Louis Ku's son, who ends up being not her son. And then uh, as her parents and her sister sort of come along and we get more and more details on aspects of, of their life. It, it, it unravels in in a way that's interesting, but also still feels natural. I think for the story. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you 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 don't buy first though, and I mean, I'm being cheeky here, but you don't buy that Louis Ku is this rugged working man who drives a bus because he's a dreamboat. But you know, because <laughs> he, he is. But it is way better than when they plastered like uh, sores and scabs on him and asked him to be a drug dealer in uh, Project yeah. J, which I p- people like that performance. That's fine. I just think it's absolutely horseshit. To be honest, because it's I'm a drug dealer. I'm so a drug dealer. Oh, yeah. I'm so strung out, man. But he he his warmth is perfectly fine here, and they build up that connection quite naturally without being force feeding it to us. You know what I mean? It's um he he drops it at intervals that feels very natural. So I think they build up this warmth together. And Lewis in 2003, like 800 movies ago, um 800 Lewis Koo movies ago. He is uh, perfectly warm and acceptable and responds to this material quite well, which actors and actresses often do when working with great directors like uh, like Derek. Um, uh, for, for Lao Ching Wan's character, who is in and around his beginning and uh, has to, you know, do uh, the difficult thing because he has his phone, uh, Louis Ku's phone, so he has to call the next of kin or whatever, you know, the fiancé or wife and... You, I, I sort of get stuck on veterans doing great reaction work, you know, that where it's all in the faces, whereas they, they are burdened with something. In this case, calling someone and giving them um, bad news. And I, I, I love seeing launching one sort of worked out, worked at. It's not very noticeable, which I think comes from Derek too, but I, I think that's very, just nice things to pick up. But if you if you feel like it, if you notice it, but it's even worse because he she's actually com- coming into the hospital and he hears the phone, so that discussion is going to be even harder possibly. Uh, now he isn't the one that uh, gives her that uh, piece of news, obviously the, the doctors do, and that's where Cecilia needs to step up and do and perform a scene that dozens of filmmakers have performed before that is real the death realization you know accepting the news that someone has died and it becomes even more heartbreaking because her phone has been ringing so she thinks that he's all right and she backs out of the curtain area there and said no 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 he just called me you guys must have you got you guys must have nope 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 that wasn't him that wasn't him uh, you you might have a little bit of a beef with uh chunk's performance i don't know but i think she keeps it perfectly real and believable um because Derek Yee doesn't surround her with manipulative elements other than just shooting it in as real of a way as possible and giving her her space to work. But it isn't, you know, styled up or anything, uh, which I think is the suitable choice for, for a scene like that. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it isn't even a big crying scene. It's just her backing out of the curtain area and, you know, wide-eyed and shocked and all of that. So is there something that doesn't work with Cecilia's performance, whether it's this scene or later scenes? For Cecilia has never really gelled well with me as an actress, and I think she does a very capable job for most of the movie, but she always has scenes in melodramas where she ends up um, peaking, right? And she ends up crying and speaking at the same time, and it always comes out as this kind of 
um, shrill and forced dialogue when she's in that state. And, and that's her, that's sort of her crying monologue moment. It happens in this, it doesn't happen in this scene. It happens a little bit later in the film. And it's like, for me, it's like nails on a chalkboard for some reason when, when she gets to that point. And for other parts of the film, she angry acts, which also, you know, like when she goes after the triad guys and she's just angry acting and talking loud and she never really seems to carry a lot of the nuance. The rest of the film, I think she's kind of in a daze and, and that works fine for sort of the state of the mind the character's in. The nuance that you're talking about, like Lao Ching Wan's reaction when he's looking at the phone and deciding to call and then he calls and he sees the you know, her and then dealing with that sort of follow up later. I'd point also to his scene later in the film with Paul Chun, uh, who plays her father, which is just an amazing scene as the two of them are kind of in this space and coming to terms with who each who they each are and and, you know, their kind of presence there and, and, and working through that. And it goes again. He, Derek could have gone a very sort of traditional melodramatic route as a shouting match, but it doesn't build into that or anything. It's like. You know, he takes it in a much more personable and what feels to me much more real than a very sort of scripted melodrama performance. For Cecilia, I, to me, she's still new in this movie, even though she's she'd been around since King of Comedy, which makes this a four-year-old career by this point. But she feels very fresh and new. And granted, she I think she responded more when material was uh, presented before. She's very funny, I think, in King of Comedy because she's part of that Stephen Chow comedy style, which is um, very funny. I, I I think a lot of people might have a problem with her voice too, because it's um, it sounds like yeah, uh, it's it's uh, you know she has a cold or something. It's very naturally hoarse, of course, or however you say it. I can understand that, but I think a lot of things in her performance, as tailored by Derek, kind of makes sense because she is just going to have to throw herself into all kinds of new stuff in life you know being alone you know the the single caretaker and taking on this job that she clearly has no idea how it works so she's this wide-eyed sort of deer in the headlights kind of presence and uh, uh, as written the character is uh, very rash and can act irrationally so she is flawed and most of the time i think that sort of works because I never really, I've never really taken away from the huge melodramatic outbursts from the movie. A lot of things in Cecilia's performance and the character, it's it's bottled up, right? Because she performs the daily grind most of the time, and there's a point in the movie where she just have it just bursts, you know, that that uh, she is too bottled up, and she has a confrontation with Lao Ching Wan, and she just sits down on the pavement and just screams her eyes out, uh, and uh, I think sort of the the emotional temperature is 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 okay. I mean, out of the performer, she's not the best performer in the movie because she is fairly new at this still, I think. But I, I've never really had any problem with uh, with the acting. It's it's kind of it, it. I can agree it looks rough, but I think it feeds into the character a little bit that she has no idea really how to navigate in this world, and she needs this anchor. You know, but the message isn't that she needs a iron, but she needs an anchor in her life. Because she is doing the job of uh, two people and more, 
you know uh, you know her daily routine in the mornings is almost akin to the like the daily routines in in beginning of all about that long if you if you remember Chayavat you know wakes up with his son they're late and they're, they're riding on a scooter and they're eating like rice and chicken for breakfast and nearly you know falls off the bike and stuff so it's all here I think she serves like at least a soda for breakfast you know along with a little bit of food she gives a little lorry like a, a coke so she has no time to make everything balanced um so for, for me i, I never D- derek steered it in a direction that made sense for the character and cecilia sort of responded to that but th- th- there are rough patches here i i do remember her other melodramatic roles like fly me to polaris not a big fan of that movie because that is when melodrama takes itself to that level where i think it's too much you know it looks pretty but um that's when she sort of Screen cries. <laughs> scream. And not well, she screen cries, but she scream cries as well. And I think I had that in the back of my head, to be honest, Paul, that thank God it isn't that movie. You know, she's taken down. <laughs> I'm not I mean it's fine. I mean Jingle Ma has made way worse movies, but I I wasn't a big fan of that movie to be honest. Uh, so I mean all, all valid points, um, and uh, as I'm not gonna argue against your your uh, view of Cecilia, but but I think people irrationally or rationally might have a little problem with her voice because she always have had that sort of exhausted, sort of coarse, hoarse voice. You know, it's not classically sort of smooth and sexy. Hello, I'm the leading lady. You know, and I don't know. That makes it endearing. I think that uh, that she uh, that she does that. <laughs> a little observation. I, I have some notes on that scene with Paul Chun and Lao Ching Wan later in the movie, but I loved so much because it was just my imagination playing tricks with me, I suppose. Uh, the initial scene with the stern father that Paul Chun plays uh, when he uh, sits down with little uh, Lori, adorable little Lori, who wants, you know, has no real conception of what goes on and has no evil, uh, evil streak uh, in him or her. It looks like a, uh, it looks like a what was it L- Laurie's a boy's name in the movie but the act but, but Daichi Harishima looks like a girl to me but I'm not too sure of uh, how, how how that is but regardless when Portune sits down with the little kid and looks at her look at Portune just clearly wanting to punch that kid's teeth in hey kid <laughs> essentially <laughs> what's your deal <laughs> Obviously, he's gonna—he's not gonna be Paul Chum the decade of the eighties, you know, in movies. Like he's more warm than that. But I—I uh, don't know. I—I I just thought that was uh, marvelous. But you cast Paul for for those roles, but you also cast Paul when you want some natural, completely criminally simple-looking acting on display, and uh, ha- have that sold. And you—you certainly—you uh, certainly get that with uh, Paul. Um... And speaking of that scene with him, because he—it gets a nice coda at the end with uh Paul Chun and uh and Hiroshima Daiichi where they get uh, a- another scene together at the end that also you know it it's a testament to the how good of an actor this little kid is because a lot of the movie is him reacting to adult actors um that that can be very challenging and i think that uh, that this young child does very well in that but you know Paul Chun of course carrying the scene with uh with this little one does an excellent job and he can, continues to dominate the screen um, in whatever kind of role he is. I mean, last film I saw him in was a couple years ago with the Finding Mr. Right 2 film called A Book of Love. And he had a small sporting role and he's like the best thing in the movie. Um, he just continues to to make roles interesting and, and to knock things out of the park like he does with this one. And with this one, I mean, you think you're going to go into it and he's just going to be a hard-nosed 
you know, sort of foil character. But you learn later that actually there's more there's more to him. There's more depth to him. And again, indicative of the kind of characterizations I think Derek Lee, Lee likes to strive for um, in his films. Yeah, it's, it's, it certainly is not painted as the stern only, you know, and um, because he and the mother, which is, um, I didn't notice it because I, I, she's in the background of scenes and stuff like uh, Bao Ching plays yeah. the mother. She was nominated for this role. I love Bao Ching, great actors, but it was like, did she have more than a line in the movie? I don't remember. She was there. She was nice. <laughs> it was one yeah. of those things like she's behind Portion most of the time. Or what, what is going on? I mean, the, the, the scene in the stair stairway with uh, him and Lao Ching Wan, she's in the background smiling. I mean, that that's excellent acting. But it's one of those things like I don't think she said too much in the movie. But I might have just missed yeah. it. She had a she had a couple scenes in early on when she was with uh, Cecilia talking about making soup and stuff, and that that quickly kind of gets overshadowed by her confrontation with Elena Kong a bit later, and then, you know, Paul Chun's strong scenes towards the end. Do, do you think it's believable how uh, how Lao Ching Wan's uh, character becomes this, he, he becomes this anchor and, you know, the pitch-perfect image of kindness in an unconditional way? You know, he's, just, he's painted as one of those characters that just wants to give her some pointers, and but he helps her more and more and more throughout the movie. Is that, um, is that realistic, at least cinematically realistic? Uh, it, 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 you know, Kozo has a term for this. He calls it the best man ever role. It, it's these characters who are so perfect in in every way that um, they're surprising. Of course, we learn uh, again. There, there's a plot point that comes up at the end that counters this, which I think works very well in in favor of the overall narrative. But you cost Lao Ching Wan to at least sell that uh, warmth and uh, that you know that he he's someone who can inhabit even yeah. a role like this like to an enough realistic degree because he's so natural at this he's so apt at this it's not it, it doesn't come like forced to him where it's like director how do i act like a guy who's kind of no like no he's he's as natural as uh as he was back in the day when he did when he did say la vie yeah and i think that's again building on the strength of them working together before in that film um the director has an idea of of what Lao Ching Wan can do and what he does well in these in these sort of nice guy roles. I mean, he can you know he can he's done action, he's done uh, different kinds of roles over the years. He's done quirky, odd, insane characters. So you know he has a variety within him. But I, this is the kind of role that I think a lot of the audience, the general public, like to see. Even though it might be one of those the best, kindest man ever role, the best man ever roles. I, it's hard for me to argue against that kindness when, uh, not that I'm arguing against Koso or anything, but it's hard to me to, for me to argue against that kindness when, when you got an actor like him. And I just enjoy that it's written as he doesn't help her once or twice. He tries to uh, build up her strength to take care of um, herself and her own life. It's not like he forces himself into her life and I'm now the man in the... In yeah. the but he's he's even... Employing some tough love, you know, uh, that, that crash course in driving and what stops and what tack to use as they as she picks up passengers. And by the way, the shots of the minibus driving between two uh, lorries or whatever you, uh, in those tight streets in Hong Kong, that just frightened me to heck. Because <laughs> you, you, you remember like the shot is like it's like a millimeter between like the rearview mirrors or whatever. And he just vroom, zooms through that 
I can speak. That is accurate. I mean, oh, God, <laughs> they uh, they go through some very tight spaces and sometimes very very quickly. And they're very skilled drivers. And it's a good thing you're on the inside, because when you're on the inside, you can't really see <laughs> just how close you're coming. Um, but yeah, it is an experience to be sure. Yeah, maybe didn't need to hire stunt drivers. Just hire minibus drivers for that shot, you know. <laughs> the, the interesting thing too is, I think that um, you know, in contrast to you know, uh, the the free reign of, of having a louching wand, you do get a little bit of typecasting here because they throw Michael Chan into the sort of typical gangster role as Uncle Seven, right? <laughs> well, yeah, but at, le- at least no one gets chopped up. You know, it's not an uh, an evil movie in that uh, regard. You know, he's a, he's a try with a heart of gold, you know, because they're, they're confronting him with when there's kids around and uh, a birthday celebration. So it's it's almost so angelic that it's little Laurie that breaks the attention because uh, his granddaughter, Michael Chan's granddaughter, comes up and, and they do what kids do. Like, hi, who are you? Let's play. And who can have a confrontation when you realize that kids are like the best thing ever when they're they they're, they have no preconceived notions about hmm who's that other who's that other person should i accept that person should i not hmm i don't like the vibe no play okay and and props too to um supporting role for um the character of elvis played by edmund so uh so chi wai who's one third of the band grasshopper uh and almost unrecognizable because normally when you see him you know, he comes out with his buddies as Grasshopper and he's all made up and, you know, he's got eyeliner on and they've got their hair and sort of wacky do's and they're wearing very fanciful, stylish clothing that's been become associated with them, even though they're sort of an older generation group now. But yeah, he's very sort of downplayed, just wearing, you know, T-shirt and shorts a lot of the time, looking very much like your standard minibus driver. And he's got a very good turn as a, in the supporting character. Was he like the... You know, supervisor of the bus company, or he was just one of you know. No, he, he was just like the friend of um of Lao Ching Wan, and he knew Louis Ku's character, right. and he's the guy that Celia initially goes to before she meets with Lao Ching Wan to talk about you know the bus, and then he's the one who sort of brokers the deal with um, Uncle Seven. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know we we've seen this structure before, like the the best man ever structure, but I think. For, for me, it was nice to see little shades of an autumn's tale in here because Ch- Giant Fat's character was being the best man ever and giving Cherry Chung's character some pointers. But it's not that I connect to. It's the fact that you got actors doing a pretty good job getting along on screen. You know, I, 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 while it's not a classic because it turns into romance, it does. It's not classic akin to that. But I, I think it's all rather pleasant how they get along and it's certainly very pleasant to see Lao Ching-Wan and uh, Daichi Harashima being this super natural perfect fit for each other you know they look like they are having the time of their life just being being in each other's companies you know uh, it's not like it feels forced to see Lao, see Lao Ching-Wan carry around this little kid I think the kid is perfectly happy to be carried around yeah. by Lao Ching-Wan who probably doesn't know who the heck he is you know some guy adult old old man <laughs> you know. uh, the name is curious, but and and I think um, you can hear the kid is dubbed throughout the movie. But I don't think the kid is necessarily Japanese just because of this name, because the dialogue matches. You know, it looks like the kid is speaking Cantonese and Mandarin. What do you think about that, or what do you know about that? You know, I I don't think um, I know for sure whether they were doing sing sound or dub for the kid, but uh, didn't really matter because the the scene that really gets to me is is the scene right you know when they're taking him to the orphanage and 
just outside. And, uh, you know, if there's a melodramatic moment that hits me in the gut, it's it's that scene between him and Cecilia and, and Lao Ching Wan and the three of them sort of playing off each other. Where that comes from, I mean, that's got to come from, I don't know if it's from the writers or from Derek E. That's got to come from a place that, can you make that kind of stuff up or is that coming from a place of somebody who's experienced that? Because that is just uh, a rough scene. It, it is. I mean, in the context of the movie, like she's uh, run out of options, essentially, she feels like. And they're, they're not they're, they're pampering the kid a little bit before dropping, uh, attempting to drop the kid off at, at an orphanage in town. And uh, Laura doesn't realize it at first, but then puts the pieces together, which is not the kid acting too clever for the movie. Right, it's not that the kid the kid's IQ is way too good for a five year old, but but it is certainly the 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 dialogue that they had the kid uh, say is um, you know I promise to be good, I promise to be good, like well what did I do? I promise to be good, and that you know you don't need to be a parent to get affected by by that. It ultimately doesn't happen because they uh, the the trio realizes that uh, there's no way like there must be another solution to this and uh, good heart wrenching stuff. I mean the the crying makes sense here the crying isn't uh, too melodramatic for the situation uh, you know the way cecilia turns around in the street and uh, in english in the english subtitles say like well what else is there you know what else can i do and and, and you know thankfully we, we might spoil might not but thankfully the movie isn't i'm, I'm gonna mention all about along but i'm not gonna spoil it during this show we, we, we've spoiled all about along during its show but uh, thankfully you know, that deja vu sensation as she waits by the bus station again and Lao Ching Wan is driving a bus. He's working. Thankfully, Derek Yee isn't adhering to almost the tropes of the genre by actually staging another accident. You know, this movie is more about going upwards rather than uh, having the rug pulled out underneath from us during the end, which is uh, certainly something other movies uh, do. And uh, I, I, I like that natural that he develops it that way and i like how sparse derek is when it comes to revealing lao ching wan's backstory because we only hear him listening to uh, a phone message on his voicemail but 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 that's early in the movie and we only hear that someone says well you know call me back and then he reveals what flaws he possesses you know why maybe the reasoning why he's trying so hard and you know he's been a bad husband and a bad father before he's actually a father you know both the woman the mom and the kid are no longer in his life because presumably he's not allowed to uh, uh, to be present and uh, that is dropped just quite naturally which is why i call this criminally simple it looks criminally simple but you gotta combine you know the natural touches coming from director coming from the writing writers uh, james yun being one of the writers and you just have to have actors that don't overplay that, those moments and just, they, they just are. They just be in the scene, you know. As, as Lao Ching Wan, you know, uh, listens to that message with Cecilia, he just have to sort of walk around in the apartment and wait for that to end, you know. He, he has to play her that. But it isn't one of those moments that are this cinematic, <laughs> you know. That's a major strength I take away from Lost in Time when it's done that naturally. Yeah, but probably it's damn hard. Or Derek Yu is that good and he doesn't face him to do a thing like that and he just gets it done in one take. I don't know. But uh, that's, uh, that's uh, you know, admirable as heck, I think. Any thoughts on that? That uh, particular scene, uh, that development, that we, when we find out why Lao Ching Wan has been 
uber kind, if you will. Yeah, I mean, again, it kind of feels like a twist, but it's not really a twist. And it doesn't go to the extent that it completely undermines the character or feels unnatural at that point. So I think it's established enough with the the recording that we hear earlier on by that small thread to then when he goes through that monologue and that sort of exposition explaining who he is and, and where he comes from. Yeah, it just feels natural. It feels like an extension. And uh, it, I think it just works to the benefit of making the character feel a bit more real rather than feeling like, the you know, sort of the best man ever archetype. Yeah, and having the bravery to share the past, like ghosts and demons and be up front with someone that looks like she's going to be a bit of a more permanent fixture in his life. I think that's a proper thing to do as well. And uh, But Delki isn't, you know, overstating those things. And when we get to Lost and Found, there's plenty of examples of things that are overstated through, you know, voiceover and stuff. But Derek isn't um, working those tools here, certainly. Um, and uh, I never feel like the words tropes and cliches like go ding 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 here because it it's just enjoyable to follow the way uh, the way the story goes up for once even though it is heart-wrenching and touching at points so. and um the way they conclude the lewis coup flashbacks uh, they're, they're obviously like super symbolic because he uh drives the bus away in one of the last shots in the flashback but that that warmth works that past relationship and what that crafted and what she's taken away from that what she's learned you know herself being with Blouching One and where they go in the future all of that works in tandem with each other quite naturally um, without being overstated so I think uh, Derek um, is um, you know being away from the directing chair for a few years didn't sort of um, lessen his abilities I think Um, uh, so the eye for the natural certainly helps, and, and I, I mean, if if any scene you hinted at the scene, but if any scene just shows actors crushing it, is that scene with Paul Chun, uh, Ching in the background, and Lao Ching Wan in her apartment that is sort of clearing out because he's asked her to move in with him, and they don't know that he's there, so he has to introduce himself, and and then Paul Chun does that very thing where he drops his stern exterior because with this new kid. It doesn't need to be, uh, you know, who are you? But he, you can sort of see it in his eyes that he, he's just sincerely asking him, is she okay? I mean, she's yeah. done some rash things before, but is she doing okay? And you can see just sort of, it's it's like relief that in his eyes, that uh, in his whole body that, th- thank God it's on that trajectory and not the other way around. Yeah, uh, that there's definitely this sense of relief and elation that, oh, she's going to be okay. You know, that, that she has a friend and, and, you know, we don't have to worry about her quite so much. And it, it, it and it's all conveyed not so much in words, but in expression and in body language. And it's great. That's a sort of a where actors under nominations i guess paul wasn't nominated uh, the, the the chick in the background was <laughs> was nominated now as i said like she's so great that you don't notice her as such but uh and and and, and the little uh, the last scene of paul tunes where he where, where the both the bicker with the kid is like good natured but also sort of the bickering with his uh, daughter you know it's good natured you know they're not uh barking at each other they're sort of just going you know they're ribbing each other uh, but by that point which is all nice and fine and uh, so the movie doesn't reach this doesn't structure itself 
to be like an emotional crescendo by the end. It just sort of everything's all right now. Everything everything's okay. You know, we're okay. Well, let's tackle new challenges together, which is sort of the reverse for some of these, uh, compared to some of these movies we've covered, that, uh, again, the, the tragedy doesn't um, blow up uh, in our face towards the end. But at the beginning. Um, so, yeah, I have, uh, out of notes, I, I just have a minor one about uh, uh, what happened during the awards season for the movie, but uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you to uh, share whatever other notes uh, you might have. And the last little note I have, and this is something that I sort of shot over to, to Ken when we were doing prep before recording uh, during the week. And, you know, it's interesting when you think of Louis Koo because here, you know, he is um, he's a minibus driver, but he's the husband of a woman who's accidentally killed by a truck driver. And then later in 2010 in the film The Road Less Traveled, he plays a truck driver who accidentally kills the husband of a woman. So he plays all roles and all angles. He is the coup. He does so many movies that he he's gonna you know as I said to you he's gonna run laps around each and every plot in the history of mankind <laughs> and eventually gonna end up with well let's just flip this then we can do it all again he can be the good guy in the next Call of Heroes sort of thing you know what I mean like when they reach yeah. another Call of Heroes style movie like let's yeah. have Louis play some someone else he was the clown bring and Joker bring me a bullwhip exactly. bring me a bullwhip you know <laughs> put put Louching One in that cell instead um yeah uh it's uh it is, it's nice to see um the staying power of uh, certain performers that are still evolving i think uh, evolving their craft i think uh, lewis is certainly not uh, done yet so uh even early in his career he still uh, he, he did some good work you know seal with a kiss is one of my favorite early lewis cool lewis cool performances where he plays a mute I think he has one line in the movie when he tries to speak one line. But that Milky Way movie, Seal with a Kiss, is one of those forgotten ones because, again, it's 800 movies ago, of 800 Louis Koo movies ago. And those are 800 was last year. That was as many movies as he did last year. I'm sure it's true. Yeah, Everybody says so. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, award season. This was an awarded movie at the Hong Kong Film Awards uh, 2. Awards, Best Actress for Cecilia Chung and Best Original Film Score by Peter Kam. But it also had some uh, big, uh, big uh, nominations. You know, best picture, best director, best screenplay, best actor for Lauting One, and best supporting actress, uh, Bao Ching. Oh, oh, by the way, uh, best new uh, artist for Little Daichi Harashima, and uh, and uh, I think best original song as well that uh, Cecilia performed. So she did the uh, theme. Uh, that year was. Um, Sort of running on Karma's year, it picked up some big awards. Uh, PTU was there uh, as well in the um, in the running, so so Johnny Toe sort of um, dominated that ceremony. Uh, not overly so. It was not like in the year of Shaolin Soccer, you would have had no chance. Uh, but um, still, running on Karma and PTU were sort of uh, uh, the headliners uh, awards wise. But uh, best actress went indeed to Cecilia. Uh, so yeah, and as for availability, the Panorama DVD that was uh, also issued in a sort of long box edition with uh, physical movie stills as extras. It seems out of print and MIA uh, for the time being, and I couldn't spot any reissue, I couldn't spot any Blu-ray, uh, at least not in Hong Kong. But hopefully you can therefore, even though it's a big movie from 2003, it doesn't seem old, it's, it's sort of still absent from Hong Kong uh, DVD, but hopefully you can score reasonably priced used copies i just have a feeling people won't uh, price jack a movie like this so, you know if you find it used you're probably gonna pay a good 10 15 us dollars for it and i think that's fair under the circumstances so uh, go get it that way and a long box edition isn't this fancy limited edition i think i said to paul that was the only thing on sale anyway 
like there was no regular DVD edition, I think. So I just bought the long box one, and uh, it's sitting on my shelf, uh, gathering dust. I don't protect these things very well. <laughs> I don't uh, seal them, seal these uh, these editions. So that's just me. Yeah, buddy. Let's uh, f- uh, finish this one off. Take another musical break. Listen to some Leonard Cohen. Yes, Leonard Cohen's music made it into Lost and Found from 1996, and that is the conclusion of Melodrama Season. Music that they probably didn't steal this time around, though. Or what do you think, Paul? Who knows? <laughs> they credit the people. They credit the record label. So hopefully it was used uh, properly. But by 1996, I just hope that Hong Kong filmmakers were doing the proper thing and uh, like asked for permission. Ken, if I can just throw in a point of uh, mention. There is, I do see a Lost in Time Thai Seng version on Amazon.com selling for very reasonable price of like 12 13 bucks i don't know if it's been cut or edited because you never know with tai sang well well hopefully it's just a port uh like the content is just uh simply ported um, from hong kong dvd even if it is a new cover and uh new writing on on, on the outside and stuff like that but uh but yeah good uh, the amazon marketplace is a good uh, place to start to look for these things so hopefully hopefully it's not 99 us us dollars or some uh, insane crap like that uh, but uh, yes, in the meantime, we'll uh, we'll uh, uh, take a musical break and then we'll talk Lost and Found from 1996 that concludes melodrama season here at Podcast on Fire. So sit tight and we'll be back. Dance me to your beauty with a burning violin. Dance me through the panic till I'm gathered safely in. Lift me like an olive branch and be my homeward dove Dance me to the end of love Dance me to the end And welcome back in the last episode of this melodrama season. I hope you enjoyed this uh, lost movie of the episode, rather. It's Lost and Found from 1996, and the plot from my little feeble review of the film goes as follows. Uh, It's written so long ago, and I still don't get plot summaries very very correct, and uh, they never flow well. But regardless, I think you'll get an idea. Uh, Lam, played by Kelly Chan, bombs into the character called That Worm. He explains this in the movie a lot. Played by Takeshi Kaneshiro on the street. And he turns out to be the man she's looking for. The man who can help her find someone she lost. That Worm runs a lost and found business. And Lam is looking uh, to find Scottish uh, sailor Ted. Played by Michael Wong. Yes, Scottish sailor Ted. Played by Michael Wong. In flashback, we see Lam being diagnosed with uh, leukemia and uh, how she later experiences uh, something magical, meeting Ted, because he's a dreamboat, at her dad's uh, shipping company. First, she doubts that the slightly eccentric, that worm, can achieve anything. But soon, the two catches up with Ted, who is about to go back to Scotland. Uh, Lam, Kelly Chen's character, decides to stay in Hong Kong for a little while uh, more uh, before going on that journey that will take her to the edge of the world, as Ted describes a particular place in the Highlands. She continues to stay with that worm and work for his uh, business uh, while in Hong Kong. So that's where I ended my plot synopsis. Again, we do uh, we, we do spoilers for these reviews. So uh, if we are going to mention what happens during the end and the last scene and all of that, that is all fine. But uh, let me throw, uh, throw it over to you again uh, for a brief uh, bite-sized opinion for Lost and Found. Uh, it's good not perhaps the best of the UFO melodrama era, at least for me. Um, main actress Kelly is competent, I would say. 
but less charismatic perhaps than uh, other roles here. Kaneshiro is great and he plays well with Michael Wong. Very Michael Wong here has a, a kind of best man ever role. A number of great supporting cameos throughout. Yeah, I, I agree because um, it has an element that negates um, strength we could have built up through visuals and dialogue and that is voiceover and it's like quite a rampant sort of voiceover and running commentary by Kelly Chan's character that appears throughout the movie that um, is uh, overstating things but I think it's still a fairly poignant and touching movie it's another scenario of dealing with terminal illness how to open up and not close up and uh, sort of how the warmth and positivity positivity is achieved despite tragedy looming you know and that, that is all anchored well I agree by the actors um, Kelly is possible, but she is an uneven presence. At, um, and I've never really... I don't remember a breakout performance by Kelly, but uh, um, and this isn't... I, I, I still want to put it on front street. Uh, we, we've mentioned it before, I'm sure. But uh, I say that this is one of my favorite Michael Wong performances because th- there is warmth there and he's uh, he feels natural too. But uh, more notes on that later. But my question is, if we're being honest, Michael the actor and Michael the mixed language performer was... Any of that, even like, was the mixed language like a barrier for you to uh, get over? Because, because for for me, it was part of the fun. But when he responded to the material, they often made that part of the script. Script anyway, including here that he is a foreigner that knows a little bit of Chinese, so that is to be expected. So when when he gets material for me, that works very well. He's also very willing to poke fun at at himself, which is a good aspect to have in your character so for you was that ever a hindrance to hear him flip-flop between Cantonese and English and stuff like that no not at all and I appreciate that uh, the director here Lee Chi Nai let him do that and knew how to use him the problem with Michael Wong is that a lot of directors don't know how to use him and they stick him in roles that are inappropriate just because they want his name power in there I guess I'm thinking of his turn as the emperor in uh, the seven swordsmen and where they're, they're, they're most especially going to just dub him. And I, I've been on record before as saying, if you're going to go to the extent to dub an actor rather than let them act, um, why not just cast another actor who's got the voice you want? I mean, you know, I know that we deal with a cinema that has to go out to multiple audiences with different languages, but I always find it interesting that you don't want to you don't want the actor to act. You're going to pay somebody else to come in and act over them in in voice dialogue. So here, I think it's it's excellent what they do with him. They let him use the Cantonese that he knows that, that they let him channel switch. I mean, it's Hong Kong. People don't always speak English, even though they understand English. That was a shock for me early on watching my first few Hong Kong movies when I heard that flip flop being like not them dipping into a word or two, but like entire sentences. And I'm thinking hard-boiled. You know, when, when Chai Fat and Philip Chan are screaming at each other, la, 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 la. this is a fucking order! <laughs> so Philip Chan says, whoa, why are they speaking English all of a sudden? What happened to the soundtrack? So I, I didn't know. We, we, we can say Michael doesn't come through every time, but if you give him material, I think there's a case for you have a name for the poster that appealed at least during this time to a degree, but he could come through, and especially in comedies. I mean, did you ever see that movie, The Case of the Cold Fish? That little uh, Danny Lee yes. produced uh, Jamie Look movie. Where he, you know, he is the SDU guy, which he was in many movies, coming to this small island to investigate this murder, and it's a very quirky movie, and they just make 
fun out of him. You know, back and forth, back and forth, calling him jerk, sir, instead of saying yes, sir. And it's also sync sound. And I think Michael is on board and then some for jokes like that. Those jokes weren't a surprise to him. And it shows that he's perfectly fine and perfectly aware of his limitations language-wise. And not that I can speak the two uh, very well, English and Chinese, obviously. But also he, he, he knows his image. And I think that that's always an adm- admirable aspect of an actor that you know he doesn't get like he doesn't feel like everyone's teasing him certainly he's a, he's aware of that bring it on man bring it on i'm a big boy uh, but but you, you're right that they're they establish uh, lee script establishes early that he is a scotsman he um speaks a little bit of chinese and so so yeah that's to be expected and we got sync sound here anyway so you forget that immediately because that's the character they establish so uh, that, that's very good. In terms of UFO, the United Filmmakers Organization, they, I I always find it hard to describe like what, what was their game, what was their like mission statement. And I guess would it be fair to say if, that they were aiming to produce these professional urban stories? So you know, both comedies with nostalgia, maybe some you know social commentary and stuff like that. They're often casting sort of the same group of actors, uh, even though Tony Leung isn't in this one. But would that be fair to say that, that UFO... Because UFO didn't do, like, fantasy movies, uh, as far as I remember. They didn't didn't do the new wave kung fu movies or anything. They, they kept the stories urban. Would, would, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, isn't uh, the one with Leslie and Anita Yun and Jordan Chan, uh, uh, he's a woman, she's a man, wasn't that a UFO joint? I believe so. I mean, you, but, 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 but you certainly got, you know, he, he ain't heavy, he's my father, those kind of movies, yeah. and... Um, uh, heaven can't wait or heaven can't wait but uh that was another leeching i movie but i just remember ufo being more um uh, they do they didn't do like empty-headed rom-coms but they did they kept the story sort of um urban and modern uh comrades i think must have been a ufo joint because it was peter chan after all and yesterday yesterday me uh, yesterday you yesterday and things like that so you know nostalgia crept into ufo's movies but uh certainly dramas and and this one I didn't remember it was a UFO movie, so it wasn't, you know, the tenth time they did the same thing. You know, Lost and Found feels not outside of what a UFO movie would be would be about, but it felt a little bit uh, a little bit different. The crew is certainly the same, um, but otherwise um, uh, fairly new. And Jordan Chan is one of the actors in here that often appeared in uh, the UFO movies. So um, not something from the nineties. I remember like whoa, all those mind blowing UFO movies, but. They were a house that provided quality. Would you think that's uh would you think that, that would be fair to say? Yeah, and I think that kind of running around in the background of many of their films though is this idea of the looming uh handover, which it becomes thematic in this film and, and thematic in, in some of the other films as well. Um, and I'll touch on those points in a little bit. Let's just get um, a few things out of the way. We, we won't spoil out, uh, spend many minutes on it, but just spontaneously, um, what's not appeal? Uh, what is it with Kelly Chan that or Kelly Chan that makes her an, sort of an uneven actress in your your opinion? I I simply put, I think she is. Uh, she has trouble sort of responding to material. I think, and she it's not like they don't challenge her. I just think that she isn't always suited for for material slash they don't 
develop it very well anyway the infernal affairs arc that she has it's not a very well written role but she doesn't elevate it either and i never felt her she was very charismatic as an actress as such if i'm being totally honest uh she's in good movies but uh breaking news was probably one of the last movies i watched her in and uh, you know she's fine but you, you're not immersed in like wow the character it's sort of well i'm watching kelly chen's or five guns and i guess that's fine you know i'm not i was never a huge fan but competent and here she's she's okay she's uneven compared to the other two but you know she's okay yeah she's just not i mean she's a singer come actress she's in that sort of pop idol role that tries to straddle both lines but she's much more firmly in the singing group i guess or the the, the pop performer group and she had some okay early roles i think um that were fine. Um, I, I I think for me, probably my favorite role of hers is a is a tie between either Anna Magdalena or Lavender. But even in those roles, as with this one, she's a presence on screen. She can pull off some drama. She can get teary when she needs to. But a lot of it just comes across as the same over time. And you don't see her having having many starring performances outside of this era. I think she was in Tokyo Raiders. If I remember, she's got a smaller role in Merry-Go-Round. But after that, it's really just cameos here and there um, until Empress and the Warriors with uh, Leon Lyon. That was kind of panned. Yeah, and you got Leon Lyon there too, who doesn't always elevate material just by being there. You know, the charisma isn't always uh, present. Oh, I'm I'm wrong. Uh, she was in Horseplay, the Ikin Chang movie, which is weird. Just a weird, weird you know, you talk about traveling the globe. It's set in Europe, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty much. It's just a weird kind of movie. And and she did have a small role in Inspector Calls, which was an interesting experiment, but ultimately did not work well as a Chinese New Year film. Yeah, yeah. So we don't run out to, to see her movies uh, necessarily. Uh, Takeshi Kaneshiro, I uh, think, is generally likable in movies. Uh, and one of those guys that I'm, <laughs> you, you you're jealous of him because he's. Um, his parents are mixed, so to say. I don't know which parent is, is what, but I think uh, one of the parents is Japanese and uh, the other, uh, other parent is either Taiwanese or... or. But regardless, he speaks Cantonese, seemingly fluently, Mandarin and Japanese, and probably very good at English too, if he ever applied it. It's one of those guys I can work with. I can work anywhere. <laughs> like, see you bitches, I'm going to Japan this year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start in Returner. And, uh, oh, Wong Kar Wai is calling me, so I'll see you guys later. But I always found him very likable. He's certainly likable here. And uh, he's an actor that, uh, again, not all, all performances would break through. But I think he has a likable appeal. And, and he, he has an appeal about him. And, uh, if, you know, against Kelly in Lavender, I mean, I think he's, he's out of those two. I think I like him more playing the angel. You know, he, he, he never felt like... Well, this is uneven, and I'm not going to look up any more movies starring him anytime soon. Uh, he, the early stuff, maybe, you know, all the, all the Taiwanese movies and what have you, they, they, they're a little bit uneven. But uh, otherwise, a uh, perfectly acceptable and sufficient actor that, um, you know, he might not go down as the legend of all legends, but uh, all, all perfectly uh, perfectly solid uh, actor. And uh, again, a guy who can act, um, you know, Panacea style, if you will. Yeah, I hate him because <laughs> he's so good. And, you know, to be fair, I like him here a lot because something about when he has long hair 
doesn't appeal to me as much. I think, I don't know, he looks better. He seems cooler. I know that long hair is kind of a, especially at the early millennium period, uh, him with long hair was sort of a cool thing. But I really like him with short hair. Um, he just, I like the way he looks here in this film a lot. And um, But he, he is, again, this multi-talented guy that you got to love, but you also got to hate him uh, just out <laughs> of sheer jealousy. I don't know how much work he has done in Japan. He certainly did uh, well, Returner, which is this sort of pan sci-fi movie. But he did that movie Sleepless Town for director Lee Chi and I. That was, well, mainly a Japanese language performance because it is set in Japan. But I, I don't know how much he has crossed over, as a matter of fact, despite knowing Japanese. Yeah, he did. Um, I, I think he was in Space Travelers. I think. Wasn't there like a sort of Japanese old style hero guy wears like a, a black, big black hat? I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, uh, I'm sure you're right. I just don't uh, I just don't know it. But uh I, I I do really like him here. He's got enjoyable warmth in him, and this uh, he's got a drive to him and a certain confidence as he uh, as this sort of almost quirky business of lost and found that includes stuff and people. That's a good like leap off point, uh, and and his performance like it, it all goes through like unscathed. The movie the, the, it sort of doesn't have any dips or whatever. But I'm what I'm leaning into is that the movie is sometimes on the brink of tripping itself over because the voiceover is too much. At sparse points, it clarifies moments that are not even on screen. But I think Kelly Chan's character is speaking of um, character traits and developments that have sometimes not been on screen yet. At one point, he says, she says, for instance, that in that moment, I found out that that worm... Takeshi character is a lonely character and you sort of wonder why Why do you need to sort of go blah can't you sort of like ease us into that and might and not even do it in voiceover you know what I mean like there are examples throughout the movie where Lee Chi and I just feels that Kelly Chan's character is sort of this encyclopedia of the movie that uh, w- what does this character do what does that mean what does that what did that moment mean it meant this and I told you and you don't you don't need to tell us all the damn time man it for some reason it it that that detracts it from being a very um it makes it uh go from you know it could have been a very good movie it is a good movie it's very touching but i i think voiceover is way too overused in the movie to be honest uh, especially when she is almost in real time narrating the scenes you know and then he said <laughs> and then i said <laughs> uh any thoughts on that voiceover good or bad for the movie yeah no voiceover is not good <laughs> As a general, unless it's as, Goodfellas or Casino, yeah. As a general rule, I mean, I came from a the, the few film classes that I did study. My professors were always very anti-narration. They always felt narration was a a bad thing. It was bad when they edited it to Blade Runner. It's just bad. It's a bad uh, crutch all around. Tell the story. You show the story rather than just having a narrator tell it to the audience. The audience should be able to figure it out if you're doing it well. That's what they taught. I've always kind of remembered that in the back of my head. Um, I don't think I can't, you know, I mean, I can't think of if this film would actually be much better without it. But I did find it grating at times without some of it. I'd say I I think it could have lived with some voiceover because uh, some moments are not depicted at all. She speaks of them, but some moments would have been depicted without uh, along the way without her sort of coming out like, blah, this is what it is. So, so it, it is a problem, doesn't destroy the movie or anything, but uh, it's it, it can nearly do it uh, at points. Like, come on, come on, I saw that. 
I didn't need to hear it. I saw it already. One uh, plus point, um, if we flip flip it a little bit. Um, well, two things. I love how many scenes are set on the streets and in sync sound as well. You can hear the noise of the city and the dialogue isn't like crystal clear because of that. And what that also leads into, Lichi and I does maybe out of practic- practic- for practical purposes because it doesn't feel sure but if you feel if you think back uh, paul on some of the scenes in the lost and found office they're extended takes they're long takes with the camera catching all these five six actors that are normally in there chung tatming maria cordero drops in every now and again and jordan chan and uh, takeshi and kelly that that is a lot of those are extended takes and they're minute long takes man and they're in a very small space. Exactly. Very, so very I was I was thinking yeah. if it's maybe it's maybe more functional. They can't have more than that camera setup, so we just have to perform it in one go. But I think that works rather brilliantly. It just gives a natural vibe to that office and uh, give, gives us a feel for the characters. Then those characters will be added upon through some voiceover that actually is good and helpful for the movie. But he isn't putting it on top of. Uh, a scene like this where it's just camera panning a little bit back and forth and we find out their stories bit by bit. Um, very very good, I thought. I, I didn't notice it until a few minutes in. Wait a minute. There's been no cuts. Well done, people. Acting back and forth. Sync sound and all of that. Like, if you messed up, you had to go again. You know, it's not like they would solve this in, in dubbing or anything. So, um, that's cool. And you, you, you appreciated that uh, uh, the movie has some uh, supporting and cameo-style characters in this movie. Was that a sort of comforting and um, valid and worth uh, valuable thing for the movie too yeah i mean if you look at the cast list like you mentioned you've got maria cordero uh chung tap ming uh and uh some some other veteran actors who show up in small roles you've also got uh jordan chan um the girls her her girlfriends um josie ho a very young josie ho yeah and uh you know so it, it's a it's a good supporting cast for her you've got uh, moses chan also very young moses chan I, I love when i can hear moses chan in sing sound because he speaks like this he's got a very hoarse voice so. it's great to see them coming out and you know playing scenes mostly many of them are playing scenes off kelly the one of course that that's kind of a gut punch to me is there's a uh reveal with maria cordero who is this you know just sort of blustery Hong Kong woman as you might expect very loud and they do a reveal with her that it's a series where they're trying to teach lessons to Kelly Chung's character right because she's feeling sorry for herself because she's got this terminal illness and what she's finding is that you know she's actually still much better off than a lot of people and and so, you know, it comes through these series of encounters and the, the encounter with Maria Cordero is the one that when it's fully played out, that's the one that gets me going and yeah. has me reaching for the tissues because it, it's a very subtle scene. There's not a lot of dialogue to it. It's basically um, short and sweet and to the point and it gets the message across very, very well. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I mean, again, you're 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 welcome to spell out any details you like. Again, we're, we're spoiling the movie, but uh, you, it's a nice little arc to single out because we don't find out in scene one as Maria bursts into the room and uh, almost scolds her daughter uh, manning the phones and things like that. We, it, pay, it pays off um, in the third scene or whatever when she appears uh, and it's, it's it's strength personified really. You know. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is part of the issue with the, the overall film in general is 
that Kelly as a character is very hard to get behind. Um, aside from her performance, just speaking about the nature of the character. I mean, she is a, yeah, she's got this terrible thing, but she's a shipping tycoon's daughter. She's in a position of privilege. She wants to work, but she doesn't have to work. She can get the best medical care around if she needs, if she so desires, you know, she kind of becomes very impulsive and, and rebels against the medical advice she's given. And that's all fine, but it's, there's a current book going around by author Cheryl Sandberg, who, for those who follow tech will know she's one of the, she's like chief operating officer of Facebook. And she's written this book called Option B, and it's gotten a lot of press. And some of the critical press is that, you know, she's, this op, this Option B book is about her, how to deal with grief because her husband passed away. And, and so she's written this book on dealing with grief. And a lot of people are saying, yeah, that's great. You know, you're dealing with grief by going and see, seeing a rocket launch with Elon Musk, right? It's, hmm. you know, it's like you're in this position of power. You've got wealth and power, and but you're trying to tell people how to deal with grief. And so it's, 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 I'm not trying to detract from her because, you know, she did work to get to where she is and everything. But for a lot of women who deal with grief, who are not in her position, it's like, okay, you're kind of talking down to us. And that kind of thing is here too. It's, it's like, yeah, we feel bad for you, Kelly, but not that much. You know, <laughs> it's it's an example in this series uh, we've encountered before in terms of this character who who closes well him or herself up uh, after you don't know how you would react if you you know unfortunately got a diagnosis like this, but that doesn't translate as well in this movie as in other movies. Uh, she, yeah, yeah, she she's a character that instead focuses on work exerts herself and uh, in a bad way you know not taking her medication but through you know it's a little bit on kelly a little bit on the director of course but it it doesn't translate into very good depiction of someone who's rash and rational and then comes to a realization later that you need to appreciate beauty in life and uh, go where you probably didn't know you would go in the case of this Scotland, but it doesn't it doesn't break out as much because it feels cold and Kelly isn't uh, very warm as a performer in this one either. Part is purpose, but it should have been a little better. I liked seeing her and that worm get on and get along, but I think she is a little bit of a crutch in the movie. She isn't striking up, at least not with Takeshi, as much of a believable chemistry that and where you realize that she has changed i can feel it i think it's poignant to a degree but it's not as uh, as poignant that as the lichinai's script and direction want uh, wants it to be I, she is um i don't know who else she would have cost but i think kelly is a little bit of a crutch for the movie too because the character i don't mind the development i don't mind but there is um and, and i'm not like trying to pick on her looks or anything she's a beautiful woman but there is there is a crutch there where, where it appears a little bit too cold than it should. Uh, should have. I think they try and balance the sort of Pollyanna-esque, Pollyanna-esque nature of uh, Kaneshiro's character as this sort of likable do-gooder who sees the bright side of everything and, and, you know, everything can be found, everything can be fixed. And they kind of highlight that against her more dour down downward nature and i think they try and play that back and forth and again it doesn't really shore up that character you know her character's side of it as as much as it should 
And I guess perhaps part of it is too is they they go on this tangent with this case about trying uh, uh, a client trying to grow roses and the roses are symbolic of his wife's battle um, against her own medical illness and that goes on for a little while and then of course the end result is not as positive as everybody had hoped and that leads to sort of the final act of the film they sort of make uh, what is uh, at the end of it they make a pretty good point though even though i agree on the sequence that it is running too long but they make a good point that we're we're doing this for someone else or we're doing this uh, for us you know growing the rose garden and attracting the ducks again and attracting the ducks uh, uh, feces as fertilizer and things like that Uh, uh, but but it was one of those things that were lichi and i was just trying to you know this is the message and this is the change and it felt a little bit ham-fisted to be honest it, it certainly not as, not as beautiful as other parts of the movie, I think. But but you know where I think Kelly works better is in her scene was with Michael. Again, best man ever. I mean, as good as she is in with Takeshi and the contrast that that represents. I think I, I really enjoy their interactions. She is a little bit more shy and girlish with him, and she clearly is falling in love with someone too. And it all helps because Michael is genuinely comfortable acting in a warm manner it's not forced though his positivity and his um and he's not being asked to angry act and no call people foul names. i have my own boat <laughs> <laughs> i want my own boat because he's a sailor uh, and I, I think those um interactions are strong they're very naturally uh, naturally um cinematically um shot and uh it isn't required of Lee Chin I, the director, to have a stylish eye. It, uh, the requirement is I an ear for story and delivery. That works very well in Ted and uh, uh, Lam scenes. The, the the quirky fantasy sequences certainly they're funny because it's Michael Wong like juggling and and uh, walking a tightrope. I had no idea why they why they were were in there and how it all played into the mind of Kelly Chen's character it was supposed to be charming that she thinks of uh, looks at him and fantasizes about him as a juggler and as a magi- magician who uh, makes an entire boat vanish it's sort of like okay who who let the quirky writer into the room <laughs> they, they're trying to go for this idea of um, something you know mysterious and, and, and different and that somehow being an uh, attractive feature to her so she just sort of lets her imagination roam with it a bit. And if I remember at some point, I think Takeshi's character gets a sequence like that where he's he becomes a, a magician very briefly. Yeah, I might have just simply forgot about that because I can't, can't think of it now. But uh, the, the the funny thing is their sequence, you, you know, but I, I forgot in a way that we were in flashback mode because Leech and I sort of cleverly makes us forget or at least make me forget that, aha, wait a minute. Because he cuts back to that worm finding the wallet in the in the trash can, and now oh, okay, cool, and now we're interested and invested in the connection that was aborted, and there's a little bit of a ticking clock, obviously, with her diagnosis. But Lichina is not overstating that, and some of the voiceover we've even gotten accustomed to because he isn't using it as as um, in an over the top manner as um, in earlier stages of the movie. I was kind of delighted when I saw <laughs> saw that, and uh, as much as I like how it all you know evolves with that woman Kelly Chan's character, at least now in hindsight, uh, after having seen the movie, 
I'm not sure their their full romantic connection was as well conveyed as it should have been. There's a he's likable and she's struggling with the unevenness of the performance. So and and I certainly felt you know crushed and uh, touched by the end. But there is something in there that isn't clicking romantically that this is going to lead into a romantic subplot. I I like that they are just hanging out for extended periods of time and that Lee Chinai isn't doing a ding romantic beat, ding romantic beat, he isn't falling into that, but all of a sudden we sort of are into that and I, I don't don't see it as a failure as such, but there is a, a little disconnect here. Takeshi does his best to sell that, there's actually a very beautiful scene where he visits her in the hospital after she's been hospitalized again and he tells her sisters, uh, Josie Ho's character or whatever, that she she couldn't bear to look at me. And the sadness on his face, this character who's been so... We can do this. And upbeat. The sadness on his face is uh, absolutely spot on. So you can feel it in him. But Kelly isn't meeting it fully. You know, for and them smashing together and merging this romance into something affecting. There is something missing there. You know what I mean? Does that just make sense that there is a disconnect there emotionally? Yeah, I think it, it does get conveyed and i think it's part in part because of her own the character's own sort of indecision on what's coming what she's going to do i i got a strong sense too once she gets to scotland that she comes to realize that she's just not really that into this whole thing like she thought she was it was maybe kind of neat and different and exotic at first and getting her out of her known comfort zone but once she's actually there, it's like, I kind of want to go home. You know, it's, I, I kind of miss that time uh, with that guy. Well, that certainly actually worked quite well because uh, so, so, uh, so ultimately I was affected by it because she clearly uh, going to Scotland. The point is that she goes to this place where, uh, where she's, she's going to watch at this cliff, uh, the, the cold front and the warm front merge. And that is the start of summer because she can't wait another year presumably she wants to experience this that she's read in books michael has told her and that's going to be you know an experience to take with her if she goes anywhere you know (laughs) after she passes and and that's not a bad thing structurally and when we do that flip when actually she michael has sensed that she misses home that this wasn't the experience that was needed and now she can go out work somehow despite the disconnect i i really felt that lich and i tied it together that way that it was nice to see them embrace and and get on and tap into that little um bubble that they were in uh, the, they even have that sort of lost and found uh jogging between each other you know before they embrace uh, in scotland kelly and takeshi and that's when it started to work but the build-up is uh, a little bit choppy before we get to the ending i just want to say that uh obvious beautiful location work at the back end back end of the film it's always nice to see hong kong movies take the show on the road and all three of them went to scotland and uh, there's nothing laughable here about michael wong uh, playing the uh, bagpipe and appearing in a kilt it's all it looks dashing man it looks absolutely dashing uh, yeah and, until he starts to fleece the tourists <laughs> exactly <laughs> no he doesn't he doesn't fleece them it's just you know it's it's a gig. It's a gig that, you know, he he does. He carries on a tradition from a, a relative, an older relative. And it, it was just funny, you know, the, the, the way they, I think that 
that basically he said, hey, our bread and butter's here <laughs> or something like that. It's like, all right, we know uh, we know what, uh, you know, what the deal is. And, and it's fine. It, it, it plays out, you know, that whole sequence, it plays out well. It's weird to think about where this actually comes from in the writing perspective. I mean, I, you know, it's like who, who had this fixation with Scotland and specifically this island because it's, I think it's based on a reference back to a 1937 British film called The Edge of the World, which is about these Scottish islands and sort of the evacuation of the last few residents from, you know, these very far outlying islands. Mm -hmm. And they actually have something similar in Hong Kong. They have some of these outer islands that had very tiny villages and people used to live there. But of course, you know, they have very limited resources and you can only get there by boat. And, you know, so it's very challenging. And over time, people just left and started living in the Hong Kong mainland. And now you can only get to these places on the weekends and they're kind of, you know, sort of these touristy spots. Mm -hmm. But the, the whole use of this is kind of a narrative point I found to be, you know, just sort of an interesting angle because it's again, it's it's not your normal sort of typical Hong Kong plot. No, so, certainly. I mean, it plays out quite w with the score that is more, I don't know if the term is Celtic, if you're talking of the score, but it is clearly evoking Scotland, right, with the choirs. And uh, it's all valid because it connects to, well, uh, she went to a place she didn't think of ever going. And that's an image, as I said, to take with her as she concludes her life whenever that life is going to conclude we know by the end that she lived for like a, at least a year and it, there's value and dignity in knowing that um, her connection with uh, the ted character wasn't destined for being a romantic connection he was you know we joke about it but he was like the best man ever but a, but a catalyst too and a very warm catalyst that uh, uh, that michael represents and uh, i take that away from the movie i think that is fairly well realized that warmth and um he is um, it's one of the most comfortable performances I've seen from Michael, to be honest. They, I can't think of many performances where they sort of tapped his uh, genuine warm nature. Uh, you know, they it was action. It was tough guy. And maybe he insisted on the tough guy. Who knows? But uh, and, and comedies sometimes. But uh, the warmth certainly looks good on him. I think uh, it's not um, forced. And uh, uh, before we get to the ending, because I, uh, I think there's a case for discussing if it does the ending well or not, because it's... Um, it's a big one. Um, anything else you want to mention before before we get to the ending? No, I think that uh, again, it's it's a somewhat uneven film in parts, but it's over overall, it's quite enjoyable, mostly because of the two guys, I think, and the the aspects that they bring to the role. And Kelly's fine. <laughs> Kelly's fine. And, you, know, you know, she's so, fine. Such fire. <laughs> <laughs> It's not. It's definitely not her worst performance in, in her filmography, for sure. Um, to be sure, yeah. because it's sort of a, compared to the Infernal Affairs arc that I think was very underwritten. So that that I can't blame her for that. Here, it they, they put writing there on screen, but it really didn't emotionally connect fully with me. It's um, you know, if any scene got to me, it certainly is the ending because. Um, we again we're spoiling this. We said we're spoiling it uh, after they you know reunite in uh, in Scotland and uh, you have the voiceover and here the voiceover sort of makes sense uh, of Kelly saying that uh, we we married and uh, then there's a funeral march literally and we realize that she 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 did pass away eventually and uh, the whole 
structure of the sequence with the visuals, the partly black and white visuals in the morning, and certainly again the the Celtic choir, for lack of a better word. I'm sorry if that is even the wrong expression, but and and also Kelly walking alongside the mourners, you know, that symbolism of that she's she's walking alongside us. She's not just in the earth and <laughs> forever vanished. I don't know, it sounds corny, but regardless, I think uh, as a first sort of hint of what I think of the sequence, I think it has established enough goodwill, the, the character friendships that we have here, that this sequence becomes very touching. One, because she, she did die. And with the visual, with the audio, but also the fact that they, it's not all grief at the end, as as, as op- often happens with funerals, after the funeral service is done, people get together and at least you can, you know, socialize and talk of memories and things like that. So it is, they're all moving on. The Leech and I isn't depicting this as heart-wrenching, where do we go now? It's, characters are moving on. And there's been a kid introduced to, to it all, so, which sounds so sugary. That oh she had a kid within that uh, within that year and uh, she lives on her memory lives on but I still think it strikes a, uh, a little beautiful balance I, it, it's really caught to me the sequence and seeing Kelly walk around in now a non-verbal performance the, the voiceover is there but it's okay but she's still she's walking around you know in all all in white and interacting with people obviously they don't feel that it gets to me you know it is manipulative it actually is but as I said enough goodwill has been established I like the story enough. And this, therefore, this ending was touching. Any thoughts? A dignified ending, laid on too thick, or what do you think? As they close it out. No, I think it works well enough. It sometimes comes across as this scene was written first <laughs> okay. to me. It's like this is they had this in mind, and then they wanted to perhaps build a movie or or build a narrative to get to that point. You know, getting there is fine. It's it it, it it's all it's all okay because again. Like going back to the whole growing the roses thing and and some of the smaller uh, character arcs that occur, it almost feels like a series of skits in in a sense to get to this point, this ending, this reveal. Um, it's and it's not really a twist, but it's very effective in the way they stage it. I think because you have this sort of revisitation of many of the characters that she's encountered before in in this sequence and um it's shot well it's staged well the fact that there is a bit of narration does really work well for this scene and it's not overdone like it's a, it's almost as staged as it is the the interactions the little interactions are still great to have uh, even um uh, when michael wong arrives because he didn't make the funeral that is the plot point so he arrives um afterwards and said oh, sorry i missed the funeral and whoever opens the door just briefly says that's okay welcome in and i don't know why i latch on to moments like that but i think the movie being more alive through sync sound i find michael very likable in the role and uh enough investment in the characters make those moments very natural and very real and even when they bring out the baby and michael wong says uh, to takeshi like he looks like his father and you hear takeshi says yeah that's nice. You know, it's, it might, might sound like I just pointed the camera to those guys and they took care of it. But I think those moments are difficult to craft because then you got to put it into the context of the whole movie and make make it work because they were never rivals. That's the thing too. This wasn't a romantic tri- triangle and therefore rivalry. It, it was always kind-hearted in that regard. An unusual score, type of score to have in a Hong Kong movie, but obviously it has played... Uh, 
uh, apart of, uh, ge- geographically. So that's why Leech and I uh, links on Discord quite a bit. But it is uh, it is well done. I'm just scrolling down to see if uh, anyone we know did the score. Composer, composer. Well, it says Mark Loy. I'm not fairly familiar with, uh, but he's a veteran. A composer and actor. Welcome to Hong Kong Cinema. <laughs> I'm a composer and an actor. Because uh, not one thing brings me enough uh, dough. So I need to act every now and again. Uh, so, so yeah. Spoilers. We spoil the fact that she died. But hey. That's that, that's how that's how life is. Life goes on for these characters. And uh, yeah. Lee Chi-Nai manages to handle it well. He's, uh, he's one of those directors that isn't... Derek Yee of Hong Kong Cinema but he has a decent enough, especially in the 90s, um, canon of movies working for UFO uh, I think he might be unofficially the co-director of He Ain't Ever, He's My Father um, certainly Tom, Dick and Harry uh, Sleepless Town, Lost and Found but even in like his first movie was a rape revenge movie look at that, he did a movie called Vengeance is Mine and a pretty nasty little piece of work too so um, he wasn't shot, um, slotted into just urban stories by UFO. Uh, but um, past Sleepless Town in 1998, I never really followed uh, his um, output. But you mentioned Horseplay. Uh, that's his latest movie. Was that any good or just weird and stupid? Or You know, it tries to be kind of like a little bit Pink Pantherish, Pantherish um, in its globe trotting. Something happens. I won't spoil it because you got to see it for yourself about, oh, uh, two-thirds of the way into the film and it just goes to wacky town and <laughs> like i mean when, when i say wacky town i'm thinking like uh what was the place they went to and who framed roger rabbit i mean Toon it's town. like toontown yeah it's like oh just so wacky <laughs> and um not not infectious to see actors acting like loons if that was indeed the case so. uh, you know it's just yeah it, it's there it's 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 not, i can't super recommend it i'd say you know if you're an econ fan you can track it down and and go for it. Um, you know, and it's got some recognizable faces amongst it. Um, you know, Leechy and I also did uh, one of the segments from Tales from the Dark, which was this sort of anthology anthology horror series that came out in uh, two parts. You know, the, the, those were hit. Those were hit or miss. Um, there's one with Simon Yam. Uh, Fruit Chan did one one. And by Simon Yam too, not just with, but yes, by yeah. Simon Yam. And then the there's the I think Kelly's in the second series. The one she's in is actually kind of fun. It's like they're doing this kind of ghost busting thing, um, a little bit comedic at times. Um, and I actually a lot of people didn't like that one. I actually liked that one. I was like I I'd, I'd watch that as a full movie, if they decided to go for it. But um you know some some interesting little short horror anthologies, if that's your thing. Those are you know two of his more recent. Um, but the interesting thing is that his second film, which I watched earlier in preparation for this, just to refresh myself on some of his early works, um, this thing called Love actually stars Derek Yee in a pretty strong supporting role. Oh, so there's a little that. bit of crossover uh, between our two films. Um, so, yeah. And also the film I had mentioned before, my brain never works when I'm on the spot, uh, K-20, The Legend of the Mask is a 2008 sort of Japanese superhero batman thing starring uh, ken shiro which i haven't seen but i know some people saw it and they said it was okay right sort of you know so if you're into the sort of mask black mask superhero kind of stuff um, you can track that one down better than uh, returner or black mask 2 or whatever <laughs> <laughs> we can hope even though lichi and, I and um, 
Takeshi had nothing to do with Black Mask too, but uh, Returner was this uh, sort of like, I wear my influences on my sleeve and I don't come off good doing so. It was always, well, it it was, and now it's gone. Kind of movie. Not the world's biggest turkey, but uh, I remember it, people just thinking that, well, it's derivative, and that's not good enough. Yeah. And we covered it on, you had me review it for one of the Christmas episodes a couple years back. Ah, you're wrong. That's why I'm the Puff historian and you're not. You're right, but you're wrong. It was the, <laughs> it was the 200th episode of Podcast on Fire. Like, oh, was it the 200th? Okay, yep, I'm yep, sorry, yep, yep, yes. Yep. I, I forced uh, the Japan on Fire section on you, so um, yeah, Returner it was. You don't get by me, like, ha <laughs> <Aha! laughs> Because I listen to them all all the time and edit the whole damn thing. <laughs> uh, but uh, regardless, I'm very thankful for that. I have no desire to watch Returner. Uh, but uh, yeah, let's uh, do some uh, availability. Oh, by the way, it won an award, uh, this movie. Uh, best song, uh, Kelly Chen's song from the movie, which I'm not sure we ever heard in a movie because the movie is mostly covered in the Leonard Cohen song that I... I don't know the title of the song. It's in the movie. You can look it up. But uh, it, it uses that as its theme. But uh, somewhere uh, Kelly Chen has a song. I don't know if it's the song that she sings with Takeshi in the middle of the movie. You know, with, with the band where Josie Ho plays the drum. Maybe that's the Kelly Chen song that uh, won the Hong Kong film award. But uh, regardless, she did. Uh, but as for availability of Lost and Found, may I put it out twice on DVD? First, a, um, a DVD that just was like the cinema print recycled uh, with burning subtitles, so which looked fine. I had that, uh, but they they put out a a remastered version in anamorphic widescreen with optional subtitles a few years ago. That is indeed listed as as out of stock and possibly out of print. So hopefully there's used copies out there because again, Lost and Found isn't this holy grail that people realize. Ah, it's an holy grail. 120 US dollars, please. I think if you find it, it's going to be reasonably priced. But uh, nice of Maya to upgrade this. But uh, sadly, Maya didn't see the point business-wise to upgrade their stuff, their catalog titles to uh, Blu-ray extensively. They did so every now and again, but not for a movie like this. So uh, that's a shame, but I hope you can find it. At any rate, we are done. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Melodrama Season. There's a little different... Um, tint to our coverage but i wanted to do another series we've done gambling season we've done vampire season we don't dedicate ourselves to hong kong and drama and it's tear jerkers the more effective tear jerkers there because certainly the action coverage gets a lot more attention and i don't blame you i enjoy that very very much but i thought let's find a selection of movies that sort of matter and are still recognizable movies when people talk of dramas you know Cela V Moncherie all about along and so forth so thank you everybody for listening to that and thank you Paul for helping me to close out these things uh, I forgot to ask you was any of these movies a uh, first well, well Lost in Time I gave you seen but had you seen Lost and Found before this viewing I had seen it I do I had not seen it in the cinema I have it on video and I had watched it but I had thought I hadn't seen it because I had just forgotten it for some reason, and I was sitting, as I sat down to watch it, I'm getting into it, I'm like, wait a minute, I remember this, and, and this is going to happen next. And so, um, yes, I have seen it, but I have since cleared it, it had been cleared out of my mind to make room for other movies, I guess. So it was a very fun walk down memory lane. Very cool. Well, thank you regardless for helping me to um, complete the coverage and close out the coverage. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Something different for, uh, for you and I, in a way, even though we're not... Uh, anti-drama or anything certainly yeah uh, for once uh, maybe I'll implement this a little bit more we're not gonna rattle off the contact information again in terms of our contact information so just 
go to podcastonfire.com for all your uh, Podcast on Fire network needs and links, uh, whether social media, my writing, and so forth. But Paul, you're the co-host and guest. You get a firm plug for East Screen, West Screen. So what can people expect out of it and where can they find it? Yes, we are East Screen, West Screen, and uh, we're still in production, even though I, this time Kevin's somewhere globetrotting. He's actually sent in a small file. And I'll be patching that into our current episode. So, concast.com, if you uh, like to give us a listen and let us know what you think, we'd appreciate it. But anyway, I've been uh, Kennedy, and uh, this was Melodrama Season. And with me to close it out was uh, Paul Fox. So, say goodbye, buddy. Bye bye. Bye bye.